I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. I'm joined today by John Page Williams, a Virginian, a member of CBF staff who has been here longer than I have. There are, I think, two staff members who've been here longer than I have, John Page, you and Mary Todd Winchester another person with a double first name. John Page, when I first met him, said, you can call me John Page, you can call me JP, but don't call me John. So John Page Williams, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Will. I'm delighted to be here. Tell me the exact date that you started the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. August 7th, 1973. That's been a while. You've seen a lot. Amen. (laughs) I, uh, Different from me, I came to CBF right out of college, my first uh, official job out of college. You you had a career before CBF. Tell, tell us what you did and also your continuing education. Member of the, um, not of the clergy, but you got your degree, your master's in uh, theology, didn't in, you know? Well, in education, but with a helping of theology. No, I've... Um, the most important thing I got out of college was a job for three summers on at the Boward Bound School in Maine. That's where I learned how much people learn outdoors. And so when I had the opportunity to start doing field education, running field trips for CBF, first as a volunteer and then as a staff member, um, I jumped at it. It was, it was very exciting. But uh, I'd been a school teacher, and I had uh, set up a program at St. Christopher School in Richmond that exists, that persists to this day, called Waterman, that is uh, basically outward bound, adapted to Mm. a school athletic program. Mm. But um, what an adventure it's been to be here at CBF for the last whatever it is. (laughs) Over 40 years. (laughs) We stopped counting. The uh, w- w- when you first came, and w- we'll talk a little bit about some of your other roles at CBF. Right now, your role is as senior naturalist, and that gives you enormous opportunities to get involved in many things, to interact with a lot of people, to be hugely beneficial to CBF in so many ways. But when you started, you were the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's outdoor education program. Well, I was at the beginning. Fortunately, that didn't last too long. We, we, we were too dumb to know we couldn't put school kids in boats at the <laughs> beginning. Now, I already knew from my experience in Maine that um, there are certain hoops you have to jump through to do that safely uh, and legally. But um, that's not rocket science. And oh my goodness, is it a powerful tool? So yeah, what's by the time somebody told us we couldn't do it, we had teachers beating our doors down. And so we gradually developed a concept. Uh, a number of people, including CBF's premier ornithologist, Bill Portlock, whom you had on this podcast last fall. Um, and we, we showed that it worked, um, and we managed to grow the program um, I changed out of the uh, hip boots and pickup truck and fleet of canoes to put on a tie and start <laughs> to hustle money to grow the program because we clearly needed to expand it. But um, 
the and where we are now, where we have been, is in trying to run the railroad. We proved it works. Now we need to educate and educate and educate. It is an essential long-term investment in the health of the Chesapeake. I, you stole my line. I was going to say it's the best long-term investment in the future of the Chesapeake Bay we can make. You got it started. It has grown uh, under your tutelage, been nurtured uh, dramatically. We still put kids and teachers and adults and and um, uh, heads of schools, um, professional educators in boats all the time. What we're doing now differently is we're under very strict rules from the Coast Guard. Our boats are about as safe and inspected as any vessels can be. So it it has grown and it has matured and it has gotten much more um, under the regulatory wing of various uh, state and federal agencies. But you got it started. Now, since then, John Page, you have um, been a very prolific writer. You're in magazines. You've written books. You speak. Uh, you are out and about. You are really viewed as the Chesapeake Bay senior naturalist. So I'm going to ask you about one of the iconic birds of the Chesapeake. We're taping this for our readers on March 10th. And round about this time every year, many of us who celebrate the Chesapeake Bay celebrate the return of the osprey. Where uh, has uh, the osprey been? And tell us a little bit about the path oh of my this goodness. magnificent bird. Uh, it's a wonderful bird, and it lives, this fish hawk, this large hawk, uh, lives all over uh, on every continent except Antarctica. Truly. Which is really extraordinary. I knew I'd um, learned something today. They, well, there we... <laughs> 42 years at CBF, I ought to be paying tuition. You know, you tell me, you, you too. This is, we learn so much in the course of doing all of this. And I should say, I'm going to cite some sources for deeper information about ospreys. There's quite a lot out there. But for folks who log on to this podcast, uh, there will be hot links right on there for four, five, six sources for to dig deeper into this in some specific areas. Uh, the, our birds here spend the, well, they spend, I'm not going to say summer because I've seen them roll in here when it was snowing, hmm. but uh, they're in here generally within the first two weeks of March, and they're around here to Labor Day. And they do some extraordinary things during that period of time. But when they roll out of here uh, in late August, early September, they are headed to Central and South America. Alberta's Central are. and South America mm -hmm. from the Chesapeake Bay. About as far south as north, the north side of Argentina. Certainly Uruguay and the Plate River, they're headed to a, that big estuary down there. Um, on the border between Argentina and Uruguay. But um, our birds, at least the, the birds that we have tagged, 
that uh, were tagged at our Arthur Sherwood Education Center on Meredith Creek outside Annapolis and at our Port Isabel Island Residential Education Center at Tangier. Uh, those two birds, Nick and Quinn, are uh, more Central American birds. There, uh, Nick is down in the uh, well up in the basin of the Magdalena River in Northwest Colombia. Right now. Right now, um, and they will will give you a uh, will give you a, a section of the CBF website where listeners can track Nick as he heads back up the road. Um, but the um, so Quinn, this is this is C, on CBF's website. This we is on have CBF's a tracking website. section yep. for these two birds, our friends, and Nick where they and go Quinn. and where they come from. Where they go, where they come from. Um, and Nick uh, Nick is in Colombia right now. Uh, Quinn is sort of off the map. But we think he's in Cuba. Uh, it is <laughs> along with a lot of other along tourists. with a lot. Of, and one of the other things is fascinating is to watch the track of these birds. Um, one of the these birds have got radio transmitters on them, which sounds crazy, except that from everything we can see from their behavior, they behave totally normally. They were uh, they were caught and. Uh, fitted with transmitters at our education centers, and uh, they fly. You can read some about the transmitters on the link on our website, and you can also read about them on the website of the Center for Conservation Biology at College of William and Mary in Virginia. They have done tremendous work. and Great partner. We, a super partner. We have worked with them a lot, uh, especially through Bill Portlock. Okay, now I, I can already hear some people concerned. Um, you're putting a, a, a transmitter on these birds. Now, I, I can tell you I've had firsthand conversations with both Nick and Quinn, and they said they don't even notice the transmitters. I'm being facetious, obviously. But we have really seen, and, and many other researchers have seen, no ill effects on these ospreys, nor many, many other birds that have been uh, fitted with radio transmitters. They're birds tiny. and fish. We've watched, actually, when I first got here, we were working with a tracking program for tundra swans. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Sladen. With, with Dr. Yeah, with Dr. Bill Sladen, at, who was at the uh, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health at the time. And Watching the evolution of tags, both visual and electronic, over the years has been extraordinary. I mean, you look at the the tracking information that we have now on great white sharks and critters like that. Down it's just, to or Atlantic little, sturgeon. Down to uh, a little chip, basically. Almost. Right down yeah. to a little chip. And they uh, go on the Center for Conservation Biology website, and it, it's amazing. Uh, I'm not going to go any further into it because I don't understand it. <laughs> Nor except do I. it looks 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 weird to look at to see to see Nick standing on a platform, and it just looks like an osprey until you realize that there's a little bitty wire sticking out of his back. Yeah, uh, but he 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 goes back and forth uh, several thousand miles. He. Uh, these birds will routinely travel literally several thousand miles. Uh, there's one 
record of a bird traveling 2,700 miles in 13 days. 2,700 miles in 13 days. But then they stay put. They find a place where the fishing is good. And they, and and they, they rest hang up. out. And you, 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 look at, you look at where Nick is right now, and it's, I didn't know much about this river. It is a gigantic marshy river basin so, so, so wait a second. Now, I have a question. So n- n- neither Nick nor Quinn are back here on the Chesapeake. Yeah. Although, yeah, although they start. So yeah. the birds arrive at different intervals. But in general, we're seeing the first of the arrivals uh, in the first couple of weeks of March, a great harbinger of spring, a great sort of renewal of of our spirits as these Absolutely. birds come back. And, and really anyone now can watch for ospreys anywhere within the bay watershed. They, they are, they are uh, almost ubiquitous. The, according to the EPA Chesapeake Bay Program, that's another link, um, about a quarter of the ospreys in the United States are here. Are here on the Chesapeake? Are here on the Chesapeake and within the Chesapeake watershed. And, and that and, is thousands. And, Thousands, and I remember from 1976, 77, when I started here, to see an osprey. Just to see one osprey was really quite an event. And we would tell students on field trips, we would stop meetings when you saw one out a window. The return of ospreys and bald eagles, other large predators, is really one of the great environmental success stories of all times. Absolutely. T- tell us a little bit about how that came Well, about. it was actually fairly simple. Uh, there are not a lot of silver bullets out there that we can deal with in restoring the Chesapeake's health, but uh, in this case it was DDT affecting eggshells in these big raptors. Um, ospreys are just a little bit smaller than bald eagles, uh, and they, they were... Uh, their eggs had become terribly fragile, and the reproductive rate crashed. So, so here's a teach, teaching moment. Um, as you say, very, very, it, it's very rare where there's an absolute cause and effect relationship between an environmental uh, conservation strategy and a result. But when DDT was banned in the early 70s, mm-hmm. I will have to look up exactly when it was banned, 1972, uh, the result within a decade or more of these big raptors at, at the end of the food chain, mm-hmm. so they were accumulating DDT in their systems, the result was a, a weakening of the eggshells. So when they sat on the eggs, they were losing a lot of the eggs, and the populations really plummeted. When DDT was banned, relatively rapidly, the result was increased populations of bald eagles, ospreys, other predators. That's extraordinary. I mean, the, the number of places in Chesapeake now uh, going out of harbors that are well-marked, where the channels are well-marked, there'll be osprey nests on every uh, on every marker and that's true from that's true from Baltimore Harbor all the way down to Hampton Roads the now it does raise you don't get very far anywhere in here without getting into larger issues and one of the things that we have to deal with whether we're talking rockfish or ospreys or any other critter especially a high on the food chain critter 
is uh, is the system healthy enough to give them enough to eat? And as the population has grown hugely, I mean, these birds are fish eaters. This is this is the only hawk in North America, one of the only hawks in the world that eats whose diet is 99% live fish. And that's a, that's a distinction with the bald eagle, which is the another majestic bird we see around here. I love to tell the story that Ben Franklin used to say the bald eagle was nothing more than a um, buzzard in a tuxedo. And he wanted the, the wild turkey to be the national bird. But the osprey, so you'll see, you'll see bald eagles in, in eating um, roadkill. You'll see them uh, in garbage cans and things like that. But the ospreys really are exclusively, almost exclusively fish They're eaters. Fishing. And, and Menhaden, to, to get into another issue briefly on the Chesapeake, the, the potential um, reduction in the number of Menhaden and the, and the possible uh, actual reduction in the number of Menhaden due to this industrial scale of fishing that, that is allowed in Virginia but not in Maryland has, has been accused of reducing the amount of fish available as food for ospreys, if I recall. There is some concern, there is some data out there of more recently of uh, lower survival of young. Typically, the female osprey will lay three eggs, and the number of birds, the number of chicks that survive is down a little bit, and it appears to be something of a danger signal. In terms uh, of food in, availability. In terms of food availability for ospreys. Now, they also eat white perch. They also eat mud shad, gizzard shad. Uh, they they eat whatever they can catch. I mean, they'll eat a gray trout or, a, you know, they'll, they'll anything they can catch in shallow water and lift, they can dive only about three feet deep. They do so penetrate they, the water they by do as penetrate much as the water you watch one dive mm-hmm. and it is down there and its ability to lift is extraordinary its talons its claws are set up to grip uh, with a almost opposable thumb mm-hmm. arrangement and they also fly with the fish fore and aft to reduce uh, windage, windage mm-hmm. on there, but their ability to lift is huge. They can lift close to a pound. Now, that puts a limit of, what, eight, nine inches on how big a fish they can actually get off the water with. Uh, it's fascinating. If you watch them, when they come up off the water, they'll get up 20, 25 feet in the air and stop in midair and shake like a dog. <laughs> just, just, and sometimes not be able to get off the water and sometimes have to drop the fish. Right. Yeah. But often they are remarkably successful. According to the uh, Cornell University allaboutbirds.org website, uh, ospreys are successful about one time in four. Not a bad. That's better than my fishing record. Better than mine. Better than. <laughs> well, they and, and they hit the water talons first. Some birds will hit beak first, correct? Yes. But the osprey hits the water talon first. It's extraordinary if they're not, if the fish is at the surface. There are some bits around, some videos of 
slow motion of them doing that, and they are able to come down to the water without touching it, swing their legs forward, and swing back as they go over the fish to pick it up uh, so that without either sticking their legs down and crashing into the water, but able to, it is the most fluid movement. Simply dipping the toe in the water. Dipping the toe (laughs) in the water as they go by, grabbing and continuing on. Well, you know, when we talk about the fact that the osprey has come back dramatically, a great success story tied directly to banning DDT, and the celebration of that, and certainly every spring when they come back, it's we're re- the, our, our renewal of our celebration. But this concept of food availability and directly, possibly directly being tied to overfishing is a, is a real example of so much of what we all deal with in the environmental realm, which is you Spot never on. quite win. There, there's always something else to be concerned about. You can never let your guard down. You've got to keep looking, keep being involved, and keep being engaged. Well, we have this invasive species in the ecosystem. Um, It's a critter that speaks into microphones. Might I be looking at one right now? Yeah, and and I might be also. uh, As long as there's 17 and a half million of us here, uh, yeah, we're going to have to continue to pay attention to our impacts. Well, John Page Williams, uh, always a delight to have you, uh, to, to see you. And I, I like to end these conversations with, you know, what else should I ask you? Any other thoughts you have on the Osprey before we sign out? One little story, and it, it has to do with, uh, <laughs> with the way we educate our kids uh, on the water or anything else. Uh, the Osprey's... Uh, Incubate the mother osprey incubates the eggs for about forty days, and she'll lay the eggs anywhere from late March to I mean from uh, mid-April to I mean the guys are back here now. It's the males fixing, rebuilding the summer cottage, <laughs> and um, they'll lay eggs anywhere from from mid-April or early April in the lower part of the bay to um, uh, into May. But they, she'll sit on the eggs about 40 days and the eggs hatch. And they grow. Um, the parents feed them for about 55 days. By late July, those young birds are starting to fly. They will fledge. And it's great fun to be around here in late July, anywhere they are, in late July and August because they talk all day long. The young birds, look at me, look at me, look at me, Mom, look what I can do, Do you Dad. talk Osprey, John Page? The, Bill, I, Bill Portlock taught me. Okay. The, um, but the young birds learn how to fish. They'll still beg from the parents, but they – they spend the month of August learning how to fish. And by the end of August, those little birds that are, what at this point, three months old, um, three months from hatching, are strong enough and skilled enough to get out of here and fly to Colombia or Cuba. Or it, incidentally, the tracking will show you the routes that they take. Uh, which is just extraordinary, going right down Cuba into Haiti and then across, hopping across to South America. The, but 90 days 
from hatching, mm-hmm. those little birds can make those migrations. Now, they once they get down there, there is mortality as they go down, and they the young birds spend about three years, their first three years, down in Central and South America in those areas before they start to migrate back up here and breed. Um, but um, and they come back to the same place, the place where they were born, and find a find a platform. But ninety days, think of that. It's extraordinary. And they know how to f- fish with this extraordinary skill they have. Well enough to get themselves two thousand, three thousand miles away. Well, I just want to let our listeners know that that John Page Williams must have some osprey in him because every time he invites me to go fishing with him, I catch fish, and that's those are one of the few examples when I actually do catch fish. He tells me where to cast, how long to let it drop, how fast to reel it in, and uh, by golly, uh, usually uh, I think I'm almost as good when I'm fishing with John Page as the osprey. One out of every four casts will give go. me a fish. Well, we, I got to cherry pick that time last <laughs> fall. Yeah, <laughs> that was great fun, uh, catching rockfish right off the beach of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation here uh, around six o'clock at night as yes, the sun sir. was going it down. John Page took me out and told me where to cast and how to reel it in, and we caught a lot of fish and turned them all loose. So in the rain, I might add. Yes, it was. Well, it's March. Ospreys are coming Hooray. back. Spring is about to. Well. These days, we feel like spring has already sprung. It's so warm, but it's coming back. The ospreys are here. Get outside. Take a look for osprey. You can see them literally, as John Page says, anywhere in the Bay Watershed. They're so much fun to watch. I never get tired of it. So, John Page Williams, thank you very much. And our listeners should go to our website, cbf.org, for Will Baker, John Page Williams, This is our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Thanks for listening. 